I'll invite you please to join with me in prayer. Lord, we once again uh, gather before you. Uh, we have already looked to you in prayer and sung to you in worship and already in just these last minutes been listening to you as you speak. We ask for a continued ability to hear. Um, Lord, your word is life. Your word points us to Jesus. And we ask that in every way you would draw us more and more towards him, that he would be our life and our everything. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, you know, one of the challenges of being uh, a pastor is when we're thinking about preaching, trying to figure out how much our sermons, our preaching should relate to the, the, the current events in the news cycle. It's, it's a tension. Uh, there is a danger, I think, sometimes of, of feeling almost this pressure to be relevant so that every week you're kind of like talking about something that's just happened and, and as a result it will almost feel like whatever's happening out there is driving what we're focusing on rather than allowing what God's Word is saying to set the agenda. There can be a pressure to be too relevant that's not helpful. Yet at the same time, there are certain situations, I think, where we're not saying anything from the pulpit in and of itself says something. There are certain moments where it is, I think, important to, to speak. And that's the, that's the challenge every pastor has. And it seems to me this is one of those times. Uh, you know, 11 days ago, I'm not sure exactly even now what the name people give for it that happened at the Capitol. Um, is it uh, the invasion of the Capitol? Or is it a protest that became a riot? Is it insurrection. Um, what I do know is that there is a lot of right grief about what we saw. Um, we can speak, of course, of the five deaths that took place. Many have spoken, I think, about the grief of seeing this symbol that is the Capitol building, a symbol that many equate with, with democracy, with, with freedom being, in the eyes of many, desecrated. And there's grief over that. Personally, I felt a grief, but I think for me it's especially been over a different kind of desecration. That in the same group where you have the Confederate flag flying and you have t-shirts saying Camp Auschwitz, you also have crosses and, and banners proclaiming the name of Jesus. And you have many who move into the capital believing they're doing it in Jesus' name. This isn't something that completely came out of nowhere. If you've been following the news, you know there has been kind of this, this growing intermingling amongst some between kind of a conservative patriotism and Christianity so that they get really confusingly intermingled. Um, not long before this, there was what was called the Jericho March in D.C. Jericho, you might remember, is when God enables his people to take a city in his name. And they're equating taking the government for installing Trump as essentially the same thing. There are evangelical leaders who have, um, who have likened giving themselves to seeing the Republicans back in office, even if they have to die for it, they've equated it with martyrdom for the name of Jesus. And at times it seems like the name of Trump and the name of Jesus are so intermingled you don't know which one is primary. Honor Jesus, elect Trump are almost the same thing sometimes. And I honestly, I, f I feel horrified 
like what we are called to do is to be a church that is so close to Jesus, so focused on him that we reflect his beauty and his name is being dragged through the mud and the world sees Jesus and they completely don't see it. It's blasphemous. And so the question that I think many pastors have been asking who are feeling similarly to the way I'm feeling is what, what's happening? What, what is going on? Where, where is the failure of, of the church in America, the failure in discipleship, so that we're seeing this this failure to understand what Christianity is about being displayed in such a prominent fashion. And it is striking to me that as we are moving through the Gospel of Matthew, that it is here that we find ourselves this Sunday. We are looking at chapter, actually the larger passage is chapter 14, verse 1, through 16, verse 12. That's one of the reasons we have kind of two different parts of it. It's, it's really one entire unit. If you're a part of the youth group and the discipleship group last night, you looked at 15. That's all part of the same thing. And, and in this passage, there are these two themes that are interwoven. There is this emphasis on, on the greatness of Jesus, on the deity of Christ. It comes through, as we'll see a little bit later. And side by side, there is this focus on, on teachers, on false teachers, and a warning about them. And that warning culminates in the verses that we just concluded with, where, where Jesus says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And I actually think what he is saying there is exactly what we are needing to hear in this moment as we're trying to understand what is going on. It is an issue of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, I, I realize that even saying that, probably many of you are going, so what? I, I don't even know what we're talking about here. And, and if you were paying attention, you'll know that you're in good company because when Jesus says that, the disciples don't understand either. And we'll actually, a little bit later, go get, get into that confusion the disciples have where they think it's about bread and he's like how can you think that but Matthew helpfully at the very end says when then they finally understood that when he was talking about the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees he was talking about their teaching although honestly that that still is something that we're going to or many commentators find a bit bewildering because you see when we're talking about these two groups the Pharisees and the Sadducees they're very far apart from each other on the spectrum. In terms of Sadducees, were very much on the liberal side. Conservatives, I mean, the Pharisees were very much on the conservative side. They didn't actually have much in common in terms of their teaching. And yet Jesus says, it is their teaching that you need to worry about. So, so what do they have in common? There are two things that if we're trying to understand what Jesus is warning us about, there are two things that I think they do have in common that's important. One is these two groups, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, both were groups that existed to help God's people follow God faithfully. The Sadducees were there to help lead people towards God. The Pharisees, with all of their careful rules, were people who existed to lead people to God. If you became one of those, you were devoting your life to knowing the Scriptures and helping other people too. This was a devotion that was honorable and good. Both of these groups existed for that purpose. And yet, both of these groups ultimately failed. In the passage immediately before that interaction between Jesus and the disciples, 
Earlier in chapter 16, there is this moment where the Pharisees and the Sadducees come together, and they almost never come together. They, they hate each other in some ways. But they come together in this one moment to talk to Jesus, and they come, and you can almost sense their arms are crossed, and they say, show us a sign to prove yourself. Now, if we just think about that for a moment when they're saying that, Jesus has healed the sick. He has fed over 9,000 people. He has raised the dead, and they're saying, show us a sign. There is nothing he could do that would convince them at this point, and that's the point. When, when God's own son, the, the power of God, God himself comes in human form, these two groups of people whose entire lives are devoted to God when they see God in human form, they reject him. It's failure. It's a tragedy. And from this, I think we're supposed to understand that this, this leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees is, is kind of almost an infection, something that happens to both of these groups along the way, where they might have started with good intentions, but slowly they turned and turned until they were completely having their backs turned to God. And Jesus says to the disciples, the same thing could happen to you. Beware that leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Think about this imagery of leaven. We were just talking about it last week, as you might remember. This, you know, if you have a small lump of leavened dough, how it gets absorbed into this larger, and the change that happens doesn't happen immediately. It doesn't happen obviously. But the change that happens will gradually and subtly change everything. And, and like like an infection, like a mold. That is what happened with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And, and Jesus is saying, beware, be on your guard. Though you right now are following me, recognize that there is a danger. He, he says the word beware. We see the word beware repeated three different times in just a few verses, which, which shows us that it's an important thing. And the idea is, is, is being vigilant, being on your guard, being aware that you are vulnerable. And Jesus says, recognize that what happened to them could happen to you. Beware of this leaven. And I would like to suggest that what we have seen happening within the American church is an example of, of a church being infected by the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And, and what I'd like us to do is to kind of first understand a little bit more about what that is, what is going on, what causes that, and then also to think through what it looks like for us to beware, to resist, to seek to be faithful. So when we're talking about teaching, you know, oftentimes, this is probably not the first time you've heard a pastor saying that we need to be careful about false teaching, but because of the history of the American church, when we're thinking of false teaching, we generally think in terms of a spectrum of conservative to liberal because a lot of the battle within the church over the last 150 years has been focusing on that. And so when people think of false teaching, they usually locate it somewhere along this spectrum. If you are a church that's more progressive, you feel like false teaching oftentimes is being narrow and, and closed-minded and, and, and too restrictive. If you are, on the other hand, more conservative, you think false teaching is primarily about not being careful enough, not, not being as faithful to Scripture, but we usually see it as a left versus right kind of thing. But Jesus clearly is not operating along that axis. 
Because remember, we're talking about the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Sadducees, who were in some ways the allies of Herod, who were willing to kind of bend the rules so that they could continue to have influence and culture, who only believed certain books of the Bible were actually biblical. The Pharisees, who were so conservative that they had special specific rules about how you tithe, how you observe the Sabbath, because they wanted to make sure that they were obedient in every possible way. And so what that tells you is if both of these are infected, it's not that, well, you know what, if we can just be more open-minded and not so closed-minded, we'll be safe because the Sadducees were that way and they had the problem. And it's also not, so we just need to be especially conservative. Let's put a rule in front of rule to make sure we don't break the law because that was the Pharisees and they had the problem. The issue is not not left versus right. Jesus is warning about a different dynamic. A dynamic, as we see if we look through chapters 14 through 16, is about moving away from what is central to God, what is at the very heart of what matters to God, to things that are peripheral. And over time, allowing those peripheral things to displace the center. It is a moving away from the core to the periphery that is the leaven that has infected the Pharisees and the Sadducees. We, we, we can see at least three examples from this section that we're looking at. Three different ways that we see this moving from the center to the periphery. First, we see in the Pharisees and the Sadducees an emphasis on the symbols, on the externals, rather than the substance. So there's this moment where the where the Pharisees grumpily come to Jesus and they say, how come your disciples aren't carefully washing their hands before eating? And this is not like a CDC moment. This is not about health. What they're talking about is that you would have this hand cleansings to make sure that the food you were eating was clean and not unclean ceremonially. And, and Jesus pushes back and he says, you're so focused on these externals and the symbols that you haven't recognized what's substantial. It doesn't matter what goes into the mouth. It matters what comes out out of the mouth because the way that you speak reveals your heart and that's what's important. They moved from the, from the center which was the substance and they're focusing on the symbols. Secondly, we see also these same teachers focus on human instructions at the expense of listening to God's word. The Pharisees had all sorts of extra rules that were meant as kind of protective barriers to keep from disobedience. They had rules about tithing, rules about Sabbath-keeping, but the problem was because they became so oriented to these restrictions, they lost sight of what mattered most. So Jesus speaks in chapter 15 about how they have these special rules that if you set aside money for God, then of course you can't use it for anything else. And as a result, people who set aside a lot of their money to God said, hey, sorry, mom and dad, I know that you're poor, but we can't help you because that money isn't ours anyway. And they violated the commandments to care for their parents. Or we can think of another example of how on the Sabbath, because the Sabbath is a day of rest, if someone's in need, if someone needs healing, I can't do anything, it's a day of rest. They are focusing on these human rules and they're missing out on what matters to God. Thirdly, we see there, there is an emphasis on power to try to do good things rather than simple obedience. So at the very beginning of our section, chapter 14, you have this really terrible story about Herod. Uh, Herod, who was the ruler uh, in that time in that region, and 
And John the Baptist, sorry, John the Baptist had called him out for an adulterous affair, and Herod didn't like it, so Herod imprisoned John. And his plan, I think, was just to kind of keep him there for a while. But then he eventually executes him for the most banal of reasons, because in a moment of drunkenness, he makes a promise to someone he's attracted to, and he's got to fulfill it by taking off John the Baptist's head. And the reason Matthew is bringing this up right now, it seems like this strange story out of place, is because the Sadducees have allied themselves with Herod. They're on the same team. They have this kind of agreement where the Sadducees basically say, we will, we will uphold you, we will endorse your leadership as long as you give us positions of, of influence so that we can do good and important things. And what they're doing is they're sacrificing principle for the sake of power. And what we should notice is that each of these things is driven by good intentions. Symbolism, the externals, those things are actually important. The, the, the human instructions the Pharisees had were for the sake of obedience. The desire for power that you see both in Sadducees and Pharisees were so that they could bring about good in their community. Each of these were fueled by a good desire, but each of these moved away from what was central. And as a result, bit by bit, they started turning further and further away from what mattered most to God until they became completely untethered from his heart. And, and what I am suggesting to you as we are trying to understand what is taking place within the church is that the same thing is happening in white evangelicalism. In certain pockets, I should say, of white evangelicalism. So think about those three things that I just said, the focus on the symbol versus the substance. I was listening to an interview of one person who had joined in that march into the Capitol building, and he spoke about how when he was on the Senate floor, so that you can understand how good it was what they were doing, you should know that they said a prayer to consecrate the Senate floor when they were there. And I think he meant it with all sincerity, and that is a powerful symbol to be consecrating that. But, but what's the substance? Is what they are doing pleasing to God in the moment? That was something he wasn't wrestling with. Or when we're talking about human instructions versus God's word. Look, I want to say I am, I am passionately pro-life. I, I am convinced that Scripture says every single life is, is to be protected and sacred and treated with dignity, whether you're talking about immigrants or the imprisoned or the most vulnerable, such as the unborn. And it is biblically our calling to protect and care for all of those. But what the Bible doesn't explicitly command us to say that we must always elect people who will put pro-life judges in the Supreme Court, no matter what else is true of them. I'm not saying that's a bad idea. That oftentimes is the wise way of acting. My point is just, it is not the biblical command. It is a human instruction. And the danger is sometimes we can privilege that human instruction over God's clear instructions to love our enemies. To not bear false witness, but always speak what is true. Or I think about, if we're talking about power, of how there are certain evangelical leaders who seem to have kind of made some sort of commitment where 
in order to be able to have valuable influence, seeking religious liberty, seeking pro-life causes, they have in some ways turned a blind eye to some of the less savory aspects of, of President Trump. It was a compromise where instead of them putting themselves in the place of John the Baptist speaking truth, they put themselves in the place of the Sadducees seeking power. And each of these things that we've just identified are fueled by a good desire. But each of them are moves away from what is central. And bit by bit, what happens is they become untethered from the very heart of God and stray from Him. My point is not for us to just bemoan. I don't think that's helpful. My point is, when Jesus says, beware the leaven of the Sadducees, he's saying we need to be on our watch. We need to name it when we see it, so that we ourselves might not succumb to a similar temptation. Maybe what I've just described is not something that is true of you in any way, but, but there might be something else. And what we need to be aware of is the temptation to look at things that matter to us, but are not central, and let those turn us aside. Beware, Jesus says, of, of this, this infection, this mold that can take over if you're not careful. How do we do this? How do we protect? Part of what we do is what we've just said. We, we need to name it. We need to recognize it and be on our guard against it. But it's not just that. That's just defensive. There is something even more significant that we can do. And that is also what we see in those verses in the, the end of our passage. So you have this kind of humorous maybe frustrating moment for Jesus, where Jesus says this command, where he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And, and we're told just a moment ago that they've kind of made this trip and they, they didn't have any bread with them or they might have had one loaf. And, and in this moment after Jesus says, you can just see the disciples like elbowing each other, told you we should have brought bread. And Jesus like kind of has like this face palm moment. And, and he says, don't you understand Oh, you of little faith, he says, don't you perceive? And then he reminds them of his two feeding miracles, the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000. And the implication seems to be that if they had understood what was happening when Jesus was feeding the 5,000, if they had perceived, if they had looked at it with eyes of faith, then they would have known exactly what Jesus was talking about when he was talking about the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. There is a sense that to know and recognize what happened with these miracles would be what you would need to resist the danger of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And so we should ask, what is Jesus saying when he says, don't you understand what these miracles were about? So let's flash back to the feeding of the 5,000. Just quickly, it's a story that probably many of us are familiar with, and we've just heard Jennifer read it. We know that Jesus is exhausted. He's just heard about the killing of John the Baptist, and he wants to get alone. He looks to a place that's solitary, and when he gets there, he finds a group of people there who have no sense of boundaries and who are very needy. And yet, rather than him just dismissing them, he it says he has compassion on them. His, his heart goes out to them. He feels their need. And so he spends the entire day, though exhausted, healing and healing and caring for them. And when the day is over and the disciples are like, whew, let's get rid of them, Jesus is like, no, we need to feed them. 
And the disciples have no idea what he means by that. But he, he tells them to lie down in the green grass. And he turns his eyes upward to heaven and blesses the five loaves and two fish that they have. And then he breaks it and he gives it to the disciples and he says, now go and give them. And they go and they break it and they break it and they break it and they break it. And, and somehow they keep on breaking it and they're not sure how this is working until all 5,000 not only eat, but it says they are satisfied. And there are 12 full baskets left over. And if you were there in that moment, most people were probably just really excited that Jesus had bought them dinner. But there are a few who perhaps were looking beyond and recognizing something extraordinary was taking place. Just maybe some might have recognized that in this moment they were seeing that Jesus is their shepherd here. Like a good shepherd, he has compassion on his sheep who are needy. Literally, Matthew talks about he commanded them to lie down in green grass like a shepherd. He, he feeds them so that they do not want. Jesus is their shepherd who is caring for them. And what's more, they would have noticed that Jesus is one who is miraculously feeding them from heaven in the wilderness. And if, if, if those descriptions sound familiar to you, it's because in the Old Testament, those are very clearly descriptions of God. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green grass. God, who after bringing people out of Egypt, in some ways one of his signature miracles, the one that he is known by, one of the many he's known by in the Old Testament, is every day feeding people in the wilderness from heaven with his bread of heaven. Now Jesus is feeding them in the wilderness. And in that moment, what Jesus is showing people, if they have eyes to see, is that God's power, God's love, God's self has come into earth in human form, and it is Jesus. This is something we see repeatedly throughout 14 to 16. When he walks on the water, he is showing that he is God. When it is such that people just touch the hem of his garment and they are healed, he's showing that he is God. He is showing that he is the Son of God come to earth and that everything people need from God, they find in him. Everything we need from God we find in Jesus. If we are longing for wisdom in this really confusing time, it's found in Jesus through whom this world came into being. If we're feeling exhausted and needing nourishment, Jesus gives us his life, his spirit, his comfort. If we are feeling ashamed and longing for honor, Jesus takes our shame away and gives us his glory. If we need hope, Jesus promises us his inheritance. If we need love, Jesus welcomes us in to the Trinitarian love of Father, Son, and Spirit and says, come home. Everything that we need from God, everything that we need, we find in Jesus. As one of him says, you, O Christ, are all I want, more than all in you I've found. That's what the miracle is about. More than all they find in Jesus. So there is so much left over. And here is where we find the answer to what it looks like to be on guard against the leaven of the Pharisees. If the danger 
is found in turning further and further away, bit by bit, focusing on the periphery and, and becoming untethered from the center. The answer is returning again and again to the very heart of God. Is returning again and again to Jesus, making Him our everything, listening to Him, praying to Him, following Him. Jesus is always the one we come back to because He is everything. And it is this, I think, that is what, what has been lost and what we're seeing happening. Somewhere along the line, I think, people have been forgetting and losing sight of the fact that the Jesus that they follow is someone who says, I am gentle and humble in heart. Somewhere along the line, they have stopped hearing Jesus when he says, if you are my follower, you will love your enemies. You will pray for those who persecute you. When they strike you with one cheek, you will turn the other as well. Somewhere along the line, I think people have lost sight of when Jesus comes to the seat of power, when he appears before Pilate. And in that moment, he could very easily have taken over and made Israel so much better, but he doesn't take over. Instead, he lays down his life to save the world. Somewhere along the lines, people have lost sight of that. They have lost sight of the center and, and have therefore become lost themselves. And, and the, key, the key of not becoming lost is to have a fixed point that we're always returning to. If we're lost in the woods, from what I understand, one of the great dangers, and this is true, I think, if you're also lost to see, is if you don't have some sort of reference point with walking, as long as you're just altering just a little bit, and everyone does when they walk, you will slowly find yourself going in the very opposite direction you were hoping to go. Or the current of the boat, or the way the wind is, if you don't know where you're going, you will find yourself veering off course. The, the answer is to have a fixed point that you are always navigating according to. And for followers of Jesus, that's Jesus. Jesus is the mountain peak when we are in the woods that we can keep looking at and knowing we're heading in the same direction. Jesus, if we are at night in the sea, he is the north star that guides us. Jesus, if we are, if we are say, seeking to make music, he is the tuning fork that we align everything that we are doing. Jesus is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. And we come to the Father through Him. Sometimes when that gets forgotten, the terrible thing can happen of Jesus' name being misrepresented, of people hearing Jesus but seeing something ugly, and that is horrible. But if we together fix our eyes on Jesus and make Him our true north in everything we do, then he can transform us and make us beautiful so that the world, when they hear the name of Jesus through us, they will see and recognize glory. And that is my prayer for us, and that is my prayer for the Church of Christ throughout this country and throughout this world. And I invite you even now to join with me in, in praying, praying 
for us where there are places where each of us, and, and I will say every mistake we make is always ultimately because we have lost sight of Jesus in some way. So if there's a way that we feel our own failure turning to Christ in repentance right now in this time, or, or praying for us as a community or for the church at large, let's spend some time in silent prayer, and then I'll lead us in prayer in just a moment's time.